0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing The Devils, based on the old Aldous Huxley novel, The Devils of Loudon, and the theme is repression. Helen, kick us off.
1: We are the nuns. We are beautiful souls, unable to tolerate our own contradictions. We live in highly religious puritanical times, despite believing that post-68, we rid our society of the worst of its so-called sexual repressions. We project the repressed parts of ourselves and our social order out onto others. In orgasmic collective ecstasies, we create saints and devils. These unwitting victims are the screens holding an image of that which we cannot bear to see within ourselves. Today, the land of the free has become a prison state. In an era of apparent sexual liberation, we have never been so mired in command and regulation around the ways in which we relate to those that we desire. At a time when God is dead, we have never been more evangelical in creating saints and sinners, devils and angels. The intensity of the repression depicted in the devils speaks to an unmanageable invasion of the real. France at the time was emerging from the Middle Ages. The apparently satanic pestilence of plague was haunting it. The world was almost psychotic. In the development of human subjectivity, the ego becomes a necessary primary repression that helps us navigate the world. Its development leads us to become neurotic subjects and to experience a division within ourselves. At an early age for Melanie Klein, we enter into a paranoid schizoid position. With language, our ego is built and with it comes contradiction at the level of our own subjectivity. Within the paranoid schizoid position, we attempt to manage these contradictions by projecting them outwards. The little boy obsessed with dinosaurs, toys that could annihilate everything if only they were real the little girl playing the innocent princess scared at night because of the big hairy monster under the bed. This is a logic of absolutes, good and bad, black and white. As with Hegel's savage figure, this is a war of all against all. For Klein, the depressive is able to tolerate ambiguity. Urbain Grandier perhaps embodies this depressive position. His community at Loudon tolerates both Protestant and Catholic. He doesn't hold to interpretations of the Bible that the authoritarian regime demands of him. He lives with shades of grey. The nuns, however, seem to inhabit a paranoid schizoid position. Grandier becomes the unwitting receiver of their projective identification. The crime of being extremely handsome is the catalyst for the contingent petrification of devilhood within him. The nuns are experiencing an intolerable division within themselves, a sexuality that cannot be born. Usually, of course, it would be the figure of the crucified Christ that would embody the the nun's desire. By But like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker of the 2019 film, Grandier becomes the accidental emblem of his society's unrest. Grandier captures the floating repressed energy within the community of nuns. He is the contingent gristle of the real. The nuns identify with the sexual desire they project onto Grandier. They imagine that they have a relationship with him. It is a delusion that allows them to deal with their own unrecognised desire. The film, like Grandier himself and like all good art, is able to tolerate contradiction. It is about perhaps one of the most repressive periods of human history, Cardinal Richelieu's France, a period that generated sexual hysteria precisely because it was so repressive. The film was made at the height of sexual, of sexual openness just two years after 1968. It is both generative of desire because of its subject matter and grotesquely, perhaps sickeningly revolting precisely because it is so explicit. The film is about a real event, just as horrific as the hyper-real imagined world that the film depicts. A documentary representation of the events could never do phenomenological justice to them. The terrifying carnival of psychedelic lighting, extravagant costume, camp production design is what is needed to evoke the reality of what was experienced. It is tensions like these that make the film so powerful. Unlike the film itself, our world has become antiseptic, It is puritanical precisely because it doesn't understand that it is highly repressive. It has repressed its repression. We cannot do away with repression. We require boundaries and barriers to that which we desire in order to conjure that very desire. Desire is the libidinal lifeblood of human subjectivity. The world would be intolerable without it. But we can bring our oppressions to consciousness. We can, to use a Zizekian analogy that he developed from Donald Rumsfeld, turn unknown knowns into known knowns. We can lower the stakes, we can identify what we actually enjoy. When repressions are unconscious, the affect related to them returns attached to other phenomena, creating chaos and dissatisfaction that is painful and out of control. Whilst at least aesthetically, anything and everything related to the sexual is permitted today, although bleached of the perverse dimension um, that makes it sexual in the first place, Complexity and contradiction is not. Contradiction and complexity is repressed, and so most especially is the contradiction of surplus value. Today, there are many urban grandiers, both those elevated and those debased. All we can do is hope that we don't become one.
0: Ooh, that was good. All right, Nina, you're up.
2: (laughs) Okay. Um, I wanted to read from the Huxley book um to start with which is an amazing text actually i mean it's it's sort of in this category of i i suppose um literary non-fiction i suppose you could say given that it's based on real events i mean he's it's not but it's not exactly a history book either it's a kind of very vivid reimagining of the events um at Loudon. and and it's very close to the film in a certain way though as you say helen the film is is much more well it's very bawdy and very kind of psychedelic and there's a there's an amazing, uh, you know, sort of '60s hippie priest, as well, which kind of like really points to the limits of that kind of uh, post '68, you know, sexual libertarianism, flipping dramatically into kind of this repressive m- modality, basically, um, and. Clearly, there's what Huxley does, and Huxley's a very interesting figure, actually, himself often cancelled and quite provocative and obviously becomes very interested in spiritual matters later on and psychedelics of one kind or another. And I suppose one of the reasons why this story is very fresh, always, maybe, is this kind of um, the anthropological dimension, right? So even though it's a world of demons and you know, nuns and religion and, you know, these sorts of theories about witches' marks, it's incredibly relevant always, basically. Like what happens when somebody becomes marked, I suppose, and therefore becomes the object of resentment, projection, splitting, you know, and all of these kind of psychoanalytic terms that we would use today to describe, let's say, black and white thinking you know, so the Manichaean nature of the good-bad opposition. And obviously Grandier is no saint. Grandier is a man. Grandier does terrible things, we could say, um, and offends people and, you know, behaves in a, a... A kind of immoral way at times, um, particularly befitting, you know, in ways not befitting a priest. And and this is why I think Oliver Reed is such an excellent character to play him in all of his kind of like alcoholic sweatiness and this kind of like super meat type man, this kind of really excessive masculinity, um, you know, which does have it have its charms. And of course Grandier is this, yeah, too seductive figure in a way. And, and what do we do with these kind of excessive uh, feelings um, that people like that arouse, you know, in terms of envy? And Girard would be obviously an uh, you know, a important figure to think about here. So I wanted to just read this uh, paragraph. Those who crusade not for God in themselves, but against the devil in others, never succeed in making the world better but leave it either as it was, or sometimes even perceptibly worse than it was before the crusade began. By thinking primarily of evil, we tend, however excellent our intentions, to create occasions for evil to manifest itself. And I think that kind of, you know, witch hunt sort of mentality never really kind of departs humanity. It just gets given another name. And I think in something like the the battles over gender and sex in recent years, where women in particular have been kind of seriously attacked, you know, and had their kind of livelihoods um, threatened and their, you know, attempts to kind of ostracise them and no platform them and so on. And, you know, we can see perhaps a kind of tendency, and I hesitate to say that it's so straightforwardly, misogynist although I do think there are misogynist elements but the the idea of the kind of um, you know women not saying the right thing or not knowing their place you know sort of rears its kind of uh, head once again (laughs) I suppose and what's interesting in the Huxley book is the kind of instrumentalization of the the repressed, unrepressed nuns and the way in which their kind of hysteria, the contagion is is invoked as a show, as a kind of consistent and constant almost performance of acrobatics and sexuality and, and so on. And even where the nuns kind of eventually recant and say, like, Grandier was never here. I never even met him. You know, this was just a fantasy. They're not, you know, it, they're not believed, right? They can't, they're not allowed to retract their... Claims, you know it's it because the devil is still working through them so everything can be blamed on the on the devil i suppose and so it would be interesting uh, maybe to talk about what the contemporary witch's mark equivalent might be today in the, in our social lives i suppose you know what you know so the old idea is that there's a part of the skin which is impervious to pain so that you can prick the witch And the witch can be male or female, right? In this case, you know, obviously Grandier is is male. But it's a particular point where the hot blade or the needle um, doesn't cause pain. And this is proof that the the devil has branded the person. And I think we see this today in terms of language, you know, where people have, have said or supposedly said or supposedly believe something which is the equivalent of the witch's mark. And therefore, they've kind of been branded by evil or, you know, wrong think. And therefore, <laughs> they're fair game. And then people can say anything they like about you. They can project all kinds of horror fantasies, you know, they can accuse you of things and, and so on. You become like a, a fair, yeah, fair game or a target for, for all of these psychoanalytic things. And it would, and again, this kind of question of the relation between religion and psychoanalysis is, kind of fundamental to this whole historical period, and then and Huxley and the film's depiction. Okay.
0: All right. So I'm next. In The Devils, Cardinal Richelieu is trying to centralize the French monarchy. To do this, he needs to weaken the independence of the French towns. So he comes up with a cunning plan. He'll tear down their walls. Without walls, they can't defend themselves. And if they can't defend themselves, they'll have to think twice before rebelling. France has been stuck in religious conflict for some time now, and the Cardinal is especially suspicious of towns with large Protestant populations. But there's one walled town with a lot of Protestants that remains beyond his reach, Loudon. Loudon's charismatic priest, Father Grandier, refuses to allow Loudon's walls to be demolished. He petitions the king to leave Loudon alone, and the king takes Grandier's side. How will Richelieu rid himself of this troublesome priest? Richelieu can't beat Grandier when the argument is about the walls. He needs to move the goalposts. Fortunately, the cardinal's agents stumble upon a disgruntled nun. The nun is sexually obsessed with Grandier, but has recently discovered that Grandier has had a secret wedding to another woman. The nun has never actually spoken with Grandier, I believe, but she's furious with him for overlooking her. She accuses Grandier of possessing her and the other nuns of the convent. The cardinal's men don't miss the opportunity, and before long a witch hunter has been brought in to perform horrifying exorcism rituals on the nuns. For the nuns, it's a no-win situation. If they accuse Grandier, they must submit to the witch doctor's exorcism. If they refuse to accuse Grandier, the witch doctor argues that they are only denying it because they've been possessed, and that means they need to submit themselves to even more assertive exorcism methods." Before long, the nuns are enjoying the opportunity to play the role of possessed women. By acting possessed, they have a license to violate social norms and behave ridiculously. In the end, Grandier never stood a chance. He's convicted on flimsy evidence. The Cardinal's men then torture him in a bid to extract a confession. But Grandier knows that such a confession would only make the trial look more legitimate, and he refuses to give it. In the end, he is executed. His executioner promises to grant him death by strangulation, but the pyre is lit before the executioner gets the noose around Grandier's neck. Grandier burns, and his remaining supporters have their bodies broken on the wheel and displayed outside the city. The film ends with the walls ripped down, with Grandier's secret wife looking absolutely miserable. The nuns, of course, return to their convent. Without Grandier, they lose their excuse to act up and must return to their old lives. There are a number of different repressions at play, many of them are sexual and rather straightforward, but I want to focus on the way these repressions are weaponized politically. Because so many of these people are so sexually repressed, they fixate heavily on the scandal of a priest who breaks his oaths and fornicates with women. They pay so much attention to this scandal that they allow it to destroy not just Grandier, but the town of Loudon itself. Many of the townspeople suspect that the charges are politically motivated, but this doesn't stop them from getting caught up in the excitement of it. Grandier's sin becomes more important than what he stands for politically. Punishing and expunging that sin becomes more important than protecting the town's autonomy. By destroying Grandier, the townspeople can imagine they've destroyed their own sin, and the catharsis of this becomes more important than defending the walls. Even though Grandier is their hero and their defender, most of them can't bring themselves to defend him in turn. This is the part of repression that is most troubling politically. What we repress socially has the power to suck all the oxygen out of the room, to take over the whole discussion, to rationally displace every other issue, every other priority. When we think we see what we repress, we become obsessed with purging it. By purging it from the other, we purge it from ourselves. The more we repress, the more vulnerable we are to political tactics which exploit these repressions to distract us from our own interests. Everything we repress can be used to destroy political figures who might otherwise be our defenders. There was once a time when journalists understood the power of the witch hunt, the power of character assassination. In the 60s, they covered up the sins and personal failings of politicians. Covering their character flaws was viewed as a distraction from the issues that affect ordinary people and from the causes those people care about. Everyone was acutely aware of the catastrophe of the Red Scare, and no one wanted to be Joe McCarthy. After the Watergate scandal, things changed. Journalists decided that they had given Richard Nixon too much of a free pass. They wished they'd told us what a paranoid weirdo Nixon was. And in the 80s and 90s, they set about ruining the lives of every politician who had an affair, every politician who was secretly gay, every politician who had any vice evocative of the desires ordinary ordinary Americans repress. We focused more and more on character and less and less on issues. As this happened, our debates became more and more focused on who we liked and less and less focused on who would actually fight for us. It became harder and harder for morally complicated people to serve as leaders, regardless of their competency or sincere commitment to the public good. It became easier and easier for flim-flam politicians to win us over with style. The journalists thought they were saving us from Nixon, but they paved the road to hell.
1: Very good. I, uh, this film is very disturbing, but kind of brilliantly disturbing in terms of the way it looks, the appearance. I know you mentioned in email, Nina, the Derek Jarman sets and stuff. It's just it's quite uh, dazzling. The I find it really funny, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of um, uh, this religious kind of cultish figure who does the, um, what do you call it? Exorcisms and stuff, who looks a lot like uh, John Lennon. <laughs> with the same glasses, you know, very hippie. Um, you, you mentioned, though, you know, these, like, what the marks are, these marks that, you know, we, we might be branded with, and you, they're, they're these, these things that sort of mean that we can't experience any human sensations. They're like, you know, these, these exclusionary zones. And I, it makes me think of, like, you know, the term phallus, <laughs> It I'm great psychoanalytically, so sort of like a sh- almost like a show of strength, let's just say, something that embodies... Strength, and that you know, obviously, I think I mentioned that there's the the guy Grandier, like he, he his crime is being like so so handsome, so Adonis-like, you know. But there there is today this sort of if you embody a sort of phallus-like aspect in some in some way, then you are devoid. You you are you are immediately bad, or you you are less worthy than another group, and you know, often the people that are sort of promoted today um, under the system have these sort of strength of weakness characteristics or physical characteristics and nothing about like them as a person. So I'm thinking of a public speaker with a, a speech impediment who is very slight and um, has all sorts of qualities that aesthetically, you know, lend themselves to, um, you know, selling selling something well in the public sphere, but sort of this promotion, bec- but there's sort of this aspect of um wonder and angelhood because of an absence an absence of sort of like a stereotypical like phallus if that makes sense
0: yeah that they're kind of not perfect there's something very evidently uh, imperfect from the point of view of normal social convention
1: or historical convention yeah
0: right and because of that imperfection, they're elevated. So the thing which in a former time is imagined to have made them less than becomes the thing which makes them
1: better than.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting, you know, what Benjamin is saying about this, this kind of, yeah, the, the sort of politician's mark. And I think we see increasingly with these kind of media campaigns, basically to, to demonize often men, but not only men. Um, think about Avital Ronell <laughs> as well. Yeah in In these situations where you know these are and these are often these are not legal charges, right there is no court here. this is not someone saying let's take this to court and you know civil or criminal and uh see what happens right so in that sense, the law hasn't replaced religion like there's this kind of just massive gray area which the internet then becomes this very blunt tool where you can say things about another private citizen. Um, or, you know, multiple things about somebody and, and the more you, you know, you can say because you think they're famous, they've got power, let's say, you know, you can take people down by doing this. Um, but you know, there's obviously no due process, you know, once you've tainted or stained or marked someone, that's kind of it, you know, they'll never be allowed to forget whatever thing they've done which is not officially a crime, nor is it not a crime, right? It exists in this sort of gray area of something like a, yeah, like a mark. And so without kind of forgiveness or atonement or even confession, really, like there is no kind of um, possibility of redemption, or very rarely is there ever any possibility of redemption. Um, And this is kind of one of the, um, I suppose, things that, that, that is, um, that is gone in a post-Christian or largely, let's say, performatively post-Christian culture. You know that there is no kind of um, way out, actually, of everything that you've ever done or said. If somebody wants to take it up with you, you know. And the, and one of the lines that's quoted in the in the book is the famous one, which is attributed to various people, but amongst whom Richelieu is the idea that you know, give me three lines of a man's handwriting and I can hang him. You know, you can hang anyone. Right, you you can if you want to destroy somebody, you can do it. Like anybody can be destroyed. It it reminds me a bit of um
1: this really like sad way. You know, we talk. I think we did a podcast um a while back, Benjamin, about you know that this quote unquote what cultural appropriation actually is, and it's not what people think it is. But like um you know, so the the appropriation of sort of like let's say terms and ideas always through this presentist lens, and obviously this has happened a lot with psychoanalysis, and so often, you know, the psycho- psychoanalysis influence, quote unquote, critical theory that takes everything that sort of has the aesthetics of what psychoanalysis is doing, but actually does the exact opposite. So within psychoanalysis, it's like that, you know, everything can contain meaning at the level of the sign, you know, but the meaning is not, you don't know what the meaning is. And the meaning can branch out into sort of infinity. But we have now this sort of like, literary critical-esque theory version of this where you read everything but it is directly literal so you do this like step beyond where you're like oh this word is related to when people use this word it shows that you know they use words related to power but it's always got the same definition so it's using this veil of like oh I'm I'm looking at something unconscious or quote-unquote subconscious but actually it's it's always literal it's always literal um, and it's always known precisely what it means when somebody's use of a signifier can take, you know, it can take years of actual thinking or analysis to work out what it actually means. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's very strange.
0: Uh, and to protect against drum interpretations, you end up having to express yourself in such a way that you aren't very coherent or effective in in your rhetoric. Yes, you're pushed into a position where the only way you can avoid that kind of critique is to talk in such a way that you're politically useless in the first instance. So your choice is impotence or exclusion in that case. I think that it, this is even more powerful when it doesn't result in the destruction of the marked person. If the marked person hangs around politically to continue to be a focal point and, and uh, uh, a gravitational pull source, That person can prevent other stuff from being talked about indefinitely for as long as they're around. And I think that the power of Donald Trump is to be this marked person who doesn't go away, who you aren't able to vanquish. And because you can't vanquish the marked person, the fixation with the sin of the marked person's aesthetic transgressions continues unabated throughout the entire period. And this allows all sorts of stuff to happen politically that you can't really confront or deal with in any meaningful sense. And much of it is stuff that would have happened regardless of who the president was, that isn't you know, directly a Trump thing, uh, but is something that would have happened if Mitt Romney were president or if Joe Biden were president or Hillary Clinton were president. But the the mark causes us to focus exclusively on that person as the a vector of evil, the thing which brings evil into politics. And so all of that other stuff can't be properly processed or discussed.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. We've already mentioned this idea of the decoy rather than the token. But Trump actually is the kind of like Uber martyr in this sense, like he's the kind of arch scapegoat for the entire era like you say in that way like in a way he's performing the service so whatever evil biden does even if it's the same or or in fact he gives it a different name right so the, the 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 camps on the border are now sort of i don't know um caring centres or something or you know <laughs> like bomb- bombing planes are now sort of like I don't know redistribution engines or whatever you know like this stupid euphemistic chain which is which goes alongside I think this this idea of the dog whistle as well which is this obsession like of various certain parts of the contemporary left that that you know which is also weird because it's Francis Galton who's the inventor of eugenics as a term who comes up with the literal dog whistle and the The literal dog whistle is a whistle (laughs) that obviously only dogs can hear, but then... The literal dog whistle invented by the actual guy who invented the term eugenics is now like a, a partially a, a left wing idea that they can hear something in right wing rhetoric which isn't for them, but that they can understand as being a dog whistle, and therefore the people using particular words in a particular way are then tainted or marked as well. Anyway, the whole dog whistle thing is is just endlessly fascinating to me, and I, but I think one, <laughs> one thing that um really strikes me about about the 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 devils of, of Ludon's story is, you know, that as Benjamin put it, that the machinations, you know, this is about politics, right? At the end of the day, this is there's there's lots of personal resentment. You know, there's the mobilization of these um the nuns and and fantasy. So it both works at the kind of psychoanalytic level. But, you know, this is about um major molar power battles, right, in the French um, into, you know, French institutions and therefore is sort of um, undeniably um, cynical. But one thing that, you know, power today and and probably always um, has to contend with is how much you lie, <laughs> how much are you prepared to lie in order to achieve your End goals. Whether you're lying about human nature, whether you're lying about your opponents, whether you think that lying is a means to an end, whether you think that you should smear your opponents because ultimately you're preventing a greater harm, you know, the kind of utilitarian um, idea of lying, let's say, you know, and it, and it strikes me that this is something um, also eternal about humanity, like its relation to the lie you know, and and having been lied about repeatedly, it's very weird to be on the receiving end of like of things that you know aren't true, and but it's also very hard to defend yourself against lies because it's hard to disprove a negative, for example, or you can't, you know, it, you know everything you say makes it worse. Just as Grandier isn't saved by his relation to the truth, um, so I suppose that kind of the relationship between lying and politics is just so kind of deep.
0: Yeah. At one point, you know, of course, the argument is made that he should confess because it will save his soul. But at one point, they make the cynical argument to him that he should confess for the benefit of the legitimacy of the state and the church, that if he doesn't confess, it will be embarrassing to the legitimacy of these institutions that they were unable to get his confession. It will make them look illegitimate. And he's a father, so he should care about the legitimacy of the church and be willing to uh, throw his own pride away for the benefit of these institutions, uh, and the fact that they actually make that argument to him and think it might work is is very interesting
1: but th- this is a sort of the magical thinking of religion you know that like any any truth like when you hold so tightly to something beyond reason any anything is you know you're looking for signs and symbols anywhere. So no matter, no matter the reality, it's just become so detached from reality. But this is something, you know, like you're talking about, um, you know, a lack of um, being penance and being able to be absolved in any way. And I do see I do see like the market system as a a secularized religion. But it's like the religion of absolution, like it only takes place at the level of your own moral, um, you know, your, uh, your success at your own hands within the market so it's like that's the absolution is to sort of be a good um, producer or a, a good exploitee, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's, but it's it's just sort of the self perpetuating kind of forward motion thing. But yeah, I don't know. It's it, it surely there has to be some kind of release somewhere, you know, like all religions <laughs> have historically had some kind of like way in which you can absolve, you know. Um, absolve yourself of your sins I mean is it becoming a billionaire and then
2: and being a billionaire fucking philanthropist is that you know is it that way but, but this is this is like a combination of what you're saying it's like of, of Weber the you know the Protestant uh you know work ethic and the spirit of capitalism where, where the only sign you can possibly get from the world because you don't know if you're chosen or you're saved is through earthly deeds, you know, I mean, whether Faber's correct or not, is a very interesting idea, the idea that, you know, this creates a particular relation to the market in that people are looking for an earthly sign that they have been saved, that their soul is, is saved. And this then generates a relation to capital. But, I mean, even more so is Walter Benjamin's claim that basically capitalism is just a kind of permanent festival, like, without mercy. Like, so there's no... Instead of thinking about this idea of, like, um... Work and then free time, or like the you know the working time and the festival time, which would be another more you know um, natural way of dealing with let's say the desire to get wrecked or to you know to have a collective Dionysian experience, which was tied to the seasons and so on. But rather, what you have in that fragment is this idea that we're perpetually in a festival. It's like a nightmare. Like that. that No, absolutely yeah, like a permanent fate.
0: And productivity, productivity gets you at both ends. So if you're poor and you don't have a lot of money, well, then you're going to be pressured by the fact that you're being immiserated because you're poor and you don't have a lot of money, right? And the argument will be made, well, you're poor because it's your fault. and You need to go get some money. Now, once you get money, then it flips into a guilt narrative. So instead of it being, hey, you made that money, it's to your credit. It then becomes, well, you're lucky you have that money. Don't you feel bad? Don't you feel like you need to do something useful? To justify the fact that you then have all that money? So the argument for productivity is there regardless of where you're at in the income distribution, and it takes different forms depending on what will work for you depending on your situation, right? So that the conceptual language of the argument for productivity is mutable. All that matters is that you find a language that works for each specific person that the system is legitimating itself to and talking to.
1: It's funny because that, that term it, it's a nightmare, the sort of carnivalesque nightmare I kind of really like, you know, because the, the nightmare is, you know, like a dream but just absolutely toxic or, you know, scary or whatever. Um, But, but you know, there is, I mean, this is a Tom McGowan point. Um, I think she just talked about it a lot, but, you know, that we get something, we get something. There's always a surplus. We get something out of our... Um, libidinal investment in the market system, but it's a toxic something. You know, it's toxic enjoyment. It's a sort of painful pleasure. Um, so yeah, our prize is is a negative. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's this weird sort of imprisoning pleasure um, to yeah that we when we we psychically invest in sort of this ideology of promise.
0: There, I think a big part of what makes Christianity and capitalism work so well together in the United States is that there are different kinds of Christianity, and therefore different kinds of Christian ideas that can all lead back to productivity, depending on where you're situated. So you have the Protestant work ethic on one end, but you've also got Catholic guilt on the other end. Uh, And the system can draw on these different latent justifications for working harder.
1: I would argue that these are all precisely not Christian and that Christianity is the solution, atheistic Christianity. But anyway, it's like a, a long process of getting to that. Uh, yeah.
0: That's a, the way that Christianity develops in the United States is influenced by competitive dynamics, which favor ideas which otherwise positively interface with the rest of the system. And I think that the way that religion developed in the United States is distinctive because it was through a competitive market, Uh, whereas in European states, particular churches were sponsored, uh, state churches, uh, some of them were kind of gradually wound down in power, like the Anglican church has kind of been gradually minimized in society by the state. In the case of the United States, we just put all of the churches in a big market competitive system with each other. And so we tend to get versions of churches which interface better and better with capitalism and with the system. And I think that's part of why Christianity looks like a more emancipatory force in Europe where Christianity uh, in a is is not emergent from that kind of market process. The marketized Christianity of the states is much more amenable to capitalism, and that includes even the churches which in Europe look different, like the Catholic Church in the states comes to look different and to have a different flavor because it's in america because it's competing with the other churches that exist in america uh, and because a big part of how it competes is by getting people to feel like it positively helps them to Mm -hmm. compete in the market that the values that it's espousing will help you be professional will help you Mm -hmm. complete the horatio algorithm
1: prosperity but i know because that is religion and it's not Christian. Christian is not religion. Christianity is a philosophical atheism.
0: <laughs> sure, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, Grandier has has something about the Jesus figure in him, which is why he's so intolerable politically, because that position of being able to unite the contradictions of Protestant and Catholic, of of you know clinging to um some, of not belief, you know, of absolutely not believing in something, you know. Of saying this is absolutely clinging to logic and reason rather than religious thinking, that is jesus that's the, the actual Jesus well, the philosophical Jesus, I should say, but he's absolutely politically intolerable, which is and, yeah, which is the really sad thing because <laughs> so what do you do?:
0: Yeah, I think a lot of what we we call religion is is these philosophical ideas, but linked up to the states. Need to legitimate itself and therefore to come up with a version of this which is amenable
1: mm-hmm. yeah exactly but
0: the the brilliant and and also horrifying aspect of this in America specifically is the use of the market to create an ever evolving set of religious legitimation narratives for the state, which of their own accord through a spontaneous process develop in such a way to become better and better adapted at legitimating the structure
1: yeah no, you take you a, a friend of mine. Um, is that the son of these very controversial televangelists from the seventies and eighties? Eighties really, and um, but he is sort of like an he set up this kind of punk church, and he's like complete atheist or whatever. And um, but he was obviously well known within the religious world, and um, would sort of preach about you know essentially the, the, the good messages of Christianity. This kind of just like more of a political kind of. Um, socialistic set of ideas. And he was very early, and a lot of people we know were very early in the sort of like embrace gay people, <laughs> whatever. And this was only like 10, 12 years ago. And all of those people were just completely shut out. The, he, there was a documentary made about this guy, Jay, and he it's a, he's in this church talking about this, that and the other, you know, leading people on. And they were like in the American way, like, oh man, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he says, and of course, with gay people, and then suddenly, like, bam, everybody shuts down and he gets, sort of gets the equivalent of cancel 12 years ago. But now, now, all ch- churches in America are super woke, you know, just uh, woke at the right time.
0: I, I don't know about all, but uh, certainly the the trend is in that direction.
2: Yeah, it's definitely that direction. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder about this um, phenomenon. I don't know how, really how widespread it is, but I suppose like on Twitter, for example, there seems to be, and, and maybe elsewhere, a kind of... Um, a sort of trad revival, or the idea of like, you know, whether people are kind of um, kind of converting to Catholicism or to particular, you know, strong forms of Christianity, and having an image of a more traditional life, which would include kind of marriage and a family, and and I don't know, loyalty and fidelity and hard work or whatever a set of values that we might loosely associate with a particular period of a certain kind of Christian capitalism um and i you know i kind of wonder about this these forms of um revolt or or sort of um allergy to let's say uh the various aspects of liberalism that we kind kind of find ourselves in or this moment yeah um i mean i wonder how kind of um well firstly how widespread that is like because obviously if you're just looking at the you know these can be like little very small things actually that seem much bigger um, than they actually are in real life, um, you know. And no doubt there are parts of America that that have, in a way, always been religious, right? Or for, or for a very, very long time, right? So that the it wouldn't be weird to be in a church or go to church. And so I, I suppose it's the question of, um, I don't know, the the capitalist or the liberal apostate. Like, are there people who kind of grew up? I mean, I feel a bit like this sometimes, <laughs> you know, who kind of um, accepted the reality of liberalism but then sort of you know the older you get the the kind of the more like horrific and empty it starts to to seem and and you you can absolutely understand looking for different um ways of thinking about virtue and you know, your relation to community. And, and you know, I mean, I'm reading Alistair McIntyre, and these are very, you know, it's very McIntyrean things. And, and obviously he's a kind of Aristotelian Thomist, right? And, and in a way things start going wrong a really long time ago, like even before the Enlightenment really, sort of after Aristotle. But, you know, the Enlightenment is part of the kind of problem um, in a way because it's it's sort of predicated on, you know, illusory and unhelpful ideas of like... The Individual, for example, you know, the just sort of destruction of, um, you know, communal and relational ties and, and so on and so forth. And yeah, so I just, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm asking Benjamin, I suppose, to you know, how he understands that maneuver. Like, let's say the post liberal return to a traditional or you know, a, a fantasy of traditional life and, and obviously things like Cottage core might play into this or you know these kind of you know sort of trends, micro trends
0: yeah you know I think that the, the Trad stuff is bigger in Europe than it is in the United States because in Europe uh, the churches are have mainly been kind of wound down and run down and for the most part insofar as there are religious ideas circulating in Europe, it comes from people who study theology rather than from people who go to a church which is trying to be competitive in a market setting and therefore heavily waters everything down in a bid to grab as many people as possible. Uh, The American churches, because they are in this market system and they're very much alive, in part because they are alive as power players, they can't be as traditional as uh, Europeans who have maybe come to religion through engagement with theology, maybe weren't raised religious, but kind of stumbled upon it uh, in at university through cultural life, have kind of rediscovered it. Uh, I think that, that that has more of that trad look to it. And when I engage with Trads online, they tend to be based in Europe rather than in the United States. Uh, so I, I think that it's a kind of European uh, cultural revolt that In the United States, certainly there are people in the United States who'd be sympathetic to it, I think especially a certain kind of Catholic. But overwhelmingly, because American churches are in this marketized game, and because more Americans become religious through growing up with family or through engagement with a local church, their kind of of religion is more based on what, what was competitive in the religious marketplace when they were a kid and less on engagement with theology, which would lead you back to a more complicated uh, understanding of virtue.
1: It's interesting. Uh, loads of um, Americans I know grew up in things like really surreal, like the laughter revival in the 90s in Florida, like really extreme evangelical, like the laughter revival with some guy going around, I'll get the details wrong, but like, it was like these ecstasies, you were touched and you'd burst out laughing. <laughs> these things like this, like absolutely obscene kind of crazy things. And then I've got loads of friends in Europe who were brought up very traditionally, like traditionally Catholic, especially in France and stuff. It's weird, that, like this, this, obviously the return to tradition doesn't really offer anything. It, and it can be just as toxic as uh, things that are just purely shifting with the market or promising something completely different. Um, but maybe it's just because I'm like really in, involved <laughs> in this group, this group of people, and they're mostly actually um it was people like Zizek and Todd McGowan and um Sky Peter and stuff. But th- there are these communities, like actually loads. Where and I'm surprised it hasn't like, I'm surprised in a sort of like, let's say more cynical left space, <laughs> or like I don't want to say post left, or you know, but like. I'm surprised more people don't know about it because it is it's just it's like it's like um it's just, it's a purely philosophical um I mean I guess it's like analysis for the people or it's sort of like using analysis as a technology but there are like commu- there's loads of communities there's loads of people doing it there's loads of events and stuff but it it, it like it won't take off because it's not promising anything it's promising no promise so <laughs> It can't be like, it can't enter the mainstream. Although sometimes there are attempts, like um, one of these guys at books was going to be on one of Oprah's reading lists. And Oprah was like, it's too negative. So that couldn't happen, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, but it, there's, lo- there are, lo- there are loads of people engaged in it.
0: it. To a large degree, it's, it's not stuff which legitimates the regime in a positive way. It is more critical, and therefore it is more appealing in contexts where legitimacy has kind of been, to some degree, rendered irrecoverable. That there's a feeling that you can't actually get rid of the state or replace it, but also that you can't believe in it in a kind of positive or substantive way. So when that kind of belief comes, I think it's similar in this respect to Marxism. Both Marxism and the trad stuff comes out in a context where the state can't be believed in, really. Uh, and where the the society and its values can't really be believed in. So from the point of view of mainstream institutions like Oprah Winfrey, it's a kind of pathological idea rather than something to promote. I also think that that one of the issues is is just the... uh, There's a big range of stuff, of course, that's pre-modern, and a lot of the old debates in pre-modern political uh, thought kind of come back and resurface when we try to do something that is is pre-modern, But because people aren't used to those debates and aren't used to the language of those debates, those distinctions and discrepancies are sometimes overlooked. Uh, so, so, for instance, I see a lot of just kind of lumping together of medieval perspectives with Plato and Aristotle, with Stoics, with you know, just anything that is before uh, the Renaissance just kind of getting treated as all the same thing. And part of the difficulty in any of this taking off is that there are so many tensions within that old work, tensions which themselves produced modernity and the things which came later. Uh, And those are tensions that I think a lot of people operating in this space have to think about if they want to popularize this stuff and bring it back. Uh, And the straightforward, just revive uh, integralism you know, there There are very serious reasons why that did not work in Europe,
2: yeah, I suppose you know one of the other kind of competing narratives, if you like, if you know to to accept that um self understanding of ourselves as a storytelling species, which I think is undeniable, is i suppose to go to the other extreme, you know to accelerate you know capitalism to be for AI and and whatnot. I don't know, like a sort of Nick Landian position. Um, but there are other people who have kind of versions of this, like in a way to say it's like technology is already on its way, I suppose, and that, that you can't really go backwards, right? Because even if you went back, people would just do the same thing again, right? So all you'd be doing is resetting the inevitable conditions for the current situation, right? So you can't really return in that way either because... It's like once we know how to do certain things, we can't then pretend that we don't know, technologically speaking, even though I, one of my favourite stories, and I don't know if this is true, but apparently for like a, a few hundred years, a while back, humanity forgot how to make fire. Like it learned and then it forgot <laughs> and then it had to be rediscovered, you know? And I love this story, but you know, but but the, the thing is it's like, well, we're here now, right? So it's like you can perhaps individually or on a small scale pretend that you're not part of this world and you can you, you can kind of remove yourself. You don't have to go along with liberal pleasures or whatever. You can refuse them. You can, you know, have your own values. You can create them with other people. Um, you know, you don't have to participate as a good consumer or whatever, a good liberal subject. But the the question is much deeper, which is like the transformations in our being as a species. It's like, you know, we could, like, there's nothing we can really do about it. So it's like. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you.
1: And this is why, like, I, it's funny, it's weird, like, because I sometimes feel like I'm, like, really dogmatic about this really, un, this this undogma thing. But, like, it's all about, it's all about sort of this level of subjectivity and libidinal investment and stuff. And I think we were talking about this the other day, like, what do we do? You know, obviously, politically, we have to do something. And I actually think that this is, like, the most political thing, weirdly, because it's about, like finding the right way, you know. Obviously, we could like engage in politics and stuff, but like it's like politics is a philosophical. It's, it's like a philo- it's it's arriving at the political through philosophy, um. But it, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, and I think I maybe somebody brave will start doing politics, not me, <laughs> but you know. Um, but yeah, it always, yeah, but we 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 can't go back.
0: Uh, part of the predicament, part of the predicament is that. Medieval thought comes out of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, where you have a religion that is spread throughout a territory, but you don't have a state that's spread throughout that territory. So the states that develop to get legitimacy have to lean on the religion, which makes this religion, which has its own state, you know, the the papal states, so its own power base materially, uh, it gives that religion a certain primacy over the polity, right? which gives morality and and religion primacy over politics and the state. Now, that is a, a very peculiar arrangement because in almost every other state, religion is to some degree subordinated to the state, even in the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire, where the Basileus operates with Caesaropapism papism, Caesar over Pope. Uh, and the same goes in the Caliphate, where the Caliph is, has both political and religious authority. So, the development in Western Europe of a situation in which politics is expected to answer to morality is a, a fundamentally peculiar situation, right? And it relies on there being a consensus about what the morality is that the state has to answer to. And so, once that consensus, that Catholic consensus, is disrupted, you then have this crippling legitimation problem where the state is trying to legitimate itself in reference to a moral idea that is no longer shared, and therefore its effort to legitimate itself with reference to the moral idea is a, is a constant grasping that is unachievable for it. And I think that is ultimately why the Catholic consensus collapsed, why integralism collapsed, because that that wasn't sustainable over time. That relationship wasn't sustainable. To have A state which is legitimating itself in reference to a religion, you have to make that religion earthy enough to be politically tractable. And to make it that earthy is to make it something people can't really believe in, in the kind of way that you would need them to for it to actually perform that function. So Catholicism became too political in trying to be the basis for the legitimacy of states. That caused the consensus around Catholicism to collapse. And then you have these Western states which are still trying to legitimate themselves in reference to a consensus which no longer exists, right? So liberalism gets posited there because liberalism goes, okay... Well, we can have a consensus around pluralism, around it being okay for you to believe in lots of different things. A thin consensus that isn't really satisfying because it's not really morally robust in the same way. And the only way to make it feel robust is to moralize pluralism, to treat the commitment to pluralism as itself an extremely, extremely moral position. And the demonstration of your commitment to pluralism and your commitment to tolerance and your commitment to multiculturalism, that becomes itself the way of demonstrating Christian virtue right? That's the strange predicament that we're in. And it is a post-Catholic predicament. It's a predicament that comes out of Catholicism failing, failing. So we can't just reinstate that. But also, it's going to go in a direction which is pathological, because this constant quest to fill in this gap that can't be filled in will cause us to continue to come up with more and more uh, pernicious dogmas that can't actually provide this satisfying role.
1: I, yeah, I guess the question is is it ever possible for a society to live into the gap and not be driven by this neurotic desire to fill the gap?
0: Well, I think that the other societies around the world don't even see this as a problem in the way that we Westerners tend to see it as a problem, because in other societies, morality and politics were enmeshed, and therefore political concerns about stability and order were, of course, moral concerns in a meaningful sense. And you see this in, in Plato and Aristotle in pre-Christian political and moral philosophy. Polity and the state and religion and ethics are all treated as part of the same big thing, and therefore you can't treat one as just subservient to the other in a kind of uh, tiered relationship in the way that the medievals, uh, medieval theorists do it. And I think that that is the kind of default position for all of those big, big, large empires that predate Christianity, Achaemenid Persia, uh, uh, the Tang Dynasty in China. All of these states have a much, much looser, thinner understanding of how religion and the state are supposed to interface, of how the good and order are supposed to interface, much thinner, much more just based around law and a minimal kind of everybody getting along. The problem with that is that it's not cathartic. It's not cathartic in the way that, that Christianity became really cathartic, really transcendental. And people have been chasing the high of having a state which is subordinated to their notion of the good. And they, we, we can't be okay with the idea that the state won't fulfill a notion of the good. No one is able to just go, well, it's okay to have a state that's just a way of getting along uh, where you know, the good is, is going to be something that comes out of the state functioning well. Because if that's really the highest good you can aim for, the good that comes out of a state which is well-balanced and functioning well where justice is, as it is for Plato, everybody doing the role that is best for them and not meddling with other people's roles, that conception of justice, when you tell it to an undergraduate, people go, what the hell is that? That isn't satisfying to me at all. Justice is just minding your own business? What the fuck is that? (laughs) Uh, People think Plato must be kidding.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's brilliant. I mean, but one of the seriously, you know, problematic or difficult aspects of this, you know, to go back to the question of roles and difference is to say, okay, well, okay, we've got this idea of the liberal individual and a certain notion of freedom and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, whether you're an existentialist, you know, you can have left-wing and right-wing versions of this to some extent, you know, like the free market then becomes the bearer of sort of liberal expression and entrepreneurialism or whatever. But if you don't have that... Then all you have is the difference between people, and in fact, there, there, there are the idea of telos as the flourishing of particular people as particular things, right? And then you're back to uh, a kind of slave society or feudalism or a caste society, or you know, society of like warriors and and you know, women are a particular thing, and there are. Do you see what I mean? So it's like. You know, liberal individualism also, like, if you like, solves the the problem of um, the injustice of justice in the sense of everybody having a role to play and their duty being to do with their telos qua person. Because, you know, there is something you you know manifestly unfair in our in our contemporary sense about that role restricted way of being, even if that's also the basis for an image of order that's predicated on an image of individual flourishing, which is another type of freedom too but but we can't go back to that either <laughs>
0: and part of the part of what the medievals do that's different and that the trads do that's different is instead of going okay there are lots of different roles lots of different specializations you know you have to excel at the craft but each kind of craftsperson is different for Plato there are specialized classes for Aristotle there are specialized crafts they instead want to say that there's a, a fundamental telos to man as such mm. that's universal And that abstracts past all of those roles which are supposed to fit into a society and makes appeal to stoic conceptions of natural law. And there being one kind of man that is independent of their particular community, their particular society, their particular roles. Uh, And oftentimes the people who are drawing on these ideas don't understand that there's a deep tension between an Aristotelian notion of virtue, which is craft relative and polity relative, and a Stoic natural law theory which treats man as an abstracted thing. Uh, but people are drawing on these things interchangeably as if there's no difference. When this is probably the principal debate of um, you know, Middle Middle Platonism, Roman political thought, you know, the thing that everybody was most exercised about was this question of whether virtue was something to be abstracted away and, and attributed to natural man or something which had to occur in a polis
1: we're like at an hour so should we end it there
0: yeah we are at an hour so yeah thank you guys so much for listening it was fun to talk about some of this medieval trad stuff Uh, and we'll see you guys on the b-side listen to us follow us on patreon to hear the b-side which we're going to do next thank you so much and have a great rest of the day bye bye